Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, that which is usually a podcast dedicated to the informal discussion of Thomas Pynchon and all things surrounding him. As you might have heard the last few episodes, we're uh, doing some bonus content before we start Vineland, and, well, I'm in charge of this episode, so uh, buckle up and get ready to appreciate 1984's hot single Sunglasses at Night by Corey Hart. Yes! <laughs> which is, uh, you know, an enduring classic which nobody has ever thought was entirely ridiculous. I'm ready for two hours of talking about this song. Oh, I two hours is not going to oh, touch it's... it. No. Y'all are here for another 10, minimum. <laughs> I, I got I to gotta work, I think, before 10, 10 hours is up. Too bad Corey Hart takes precedence. Over right. Okay. okay. I got to like approve people's paychecks tomorrow, though. Even their rent. Okay. Well. Pay them in sunglasses. Oh, no, sure. No, no, no. I, actually, I was inspired by your, um, by your furious, uh, f- furious hatred of men, Kate. Okay. And so I'm, I'm going to instead, apropos of nothing but that, um, talk probably too much about um, Cormac McCarthy. Definitely not oh. prepared at all for this. All right. That's now, definitely a man. <laughs> yes. Um, now, the reason I introduce him this way is because I think as much as he has talked about, he has, he has talked about, um, honestly, too much, and I don't need to talk about him anymore. But there are a few books of his which are vastly underrated, and I think that they are overlooked primarily because of the associations people have with his more popular works. Hmm. So I, I would like to start this by asking you three your opinions of Cormac McCarthy if you've read any of his works or if you haven't what 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 your preconceptions are uh I have read some of Cormac McCarthy's work um I have read uh The Road I have read The uh No Country for Old Men I have read The um All the Pretty Horses and I own a copy of Blood Meridian and his most recent duology that was published like months before he died, um, but have not read those. Um, my impressions of him are positive. Like I don't, I know that he definitely exists in that like lit bro circle that we've mentioned on a couple of other podcasts, where there are certain people who will read his work and then get really obsessed with it and make their personality about his work and you know force people in their orbit to read him even if they're not interested in it i think also though potentially a lot of those people who have at times been that obsessed with his work and been that into it haven't totally understood what he's writing about um in in the books that he that he writes that's at least my impression anyway being far from an expert on his work um i think he was also just an interesting person just like there's an there's a youtube channel i forgot the name of it that that has broken down like a lot of his thoughts on other things related to writing and the literary landscape and kind of his place in it and his influences and all of that and i think he comes from a very uh interesting 
lineage of people and kind of the the orbit that he operated in as a semi-unrelated note um i had a writing professor compare my dialogue to cormac mccarthy's dialogue which is probably one of the best like compliments i ever got on anything that i've read um or that i'd written uh but that is that is probably yeah that's probably everything i got yeah i've i'm similar to kate i have read uh the road and no country for old men i have uh blood meridian and sutry on my bookshelf to read um i i did enjoy both the road and and no country i i picked up no country after the movie came out um partly uh partly in uh in protest to the movie beating out there will be blood for best film and best director but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, so I decided to read the book and see, and I I, I enjoyed both. Um, I reread The Road recently, um, and I, I still enjoyed it. Um, I don't. I know that book got a lot of hype um, for a lot of different reasons, and I th- I thought it was fine, but I don't necessarily think that i'm on board with all of the praise that it received um nothing against it like i said i i I really enjoyed it but um i'm more curious to to dive into his his other stuff specifically the the other two that i have on my shelf yeah so i actually have a a lot of experience with Cormac mccarthy i've read everything uh but the orchard keeper and his most recent two novels um i was taught I've I've in classes I've I've studied uh, the road and a country for old men in undergrad and uh, in grad school I did take a class on Cormac McCarthy my first semester uh, with uh, Mark Busby uh, who's a um, is a published McCarthy scholar he later would serve on my thesis committee um, the professor did um, so yeah I mean I I have a lot of experience with him I uh, I've also I've spent a good amount of time, probably 20 to 40 hours in the Cormac McCarthy archives at the Whitliffe Collection at Texas State. Uh, I went to Texas State for grad school, and that was part of the class. And then after I finished grad school, I was vaguely working on a paper on religion and the crossing. Um, So I've read, there's probably... There's at least five or six drafts of the crossing in that archive. There might be even more. I didn't I didn't uh, exhaustively go through literally everything about the crossing, although I was planning to uh, I ended up moving. Um, but so I've skimmed um, at least skimmed five or six of the drafts of the crossing. I've also spent some time with the Sutri archives, uh, the, the archives related to Sutri. Um, Cormac is probably McCarthy's probably you know one of my probably like top fifteen, top twenty, top twelve favorite authors. Um, my favorite is Suchery, probably by by a good a good amount, um, which Will and I have talked about before. Um, a small little anecdote is uh, when I was in grad school, I uh, I dropped acid and during that class, not it, during that class, but like the semester for that class, I dropped acid and read Child of God for the first time. Um, yeah, which was, you know, that you that, do that the craziest teaching. shit when you drop acid. 
Yeah, it was definitely an experience, one that I would somewhat recommend, depending on your mental, um, your how your mental how your mental space works. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I do have a, a good amount of experience with McCarthy. All right, so yeah, thank thank you for all going through that, and uh, I think exactly what I think exactly what Kate was getting at with the lip bro thing, combined with what Cody mentioned there about um, feeling like the road is one of those books that is entirely misplaced in terms of its praise. Is is th those two feelings are incredibly present whenever anybody talks about McCarthy online or in person, and for very good reason. Um, my personal experience is far less um, in-depth than Luke's here is, um, but but I have read The or the Orchard Keeper. I have not finished The Crossing, and I have not read Cities of the Plain, but his other works I'm familiar with. Like, like, like he, it's one of my favorite, he is one of, sorry, <laughs> like Luke, um, he is one of my favorite authors. Uh, but I'm not just bringing him up because I really like his books, although I, I could be doing that. Um, I think it's, he's worth bringing up in this context as a pension show because he is viewed by a lot of people as like, McCarthy, I mean, as the the hardcore violent author who uses no punctuation and you know big words just to scare people um it's true which is which is significantly different from from pensions which is basically um long sentences just to scare people <laughs> but um both of them have a habit of leaning very very hard into the the premises of transgression as an end to itself and their general motivations for these things are not terribly dissimilar. <clears throat> uh, McCarthy's primary themes throughout all of his works are, are uh, the, the encroachment of technology on traditional ways of living and the human identity, uh, orphanhood, morality, theology, and tying all of those last three together, uh, nihilism, I'm not sure I would characterize his philosophy as truly nihilistic. I'm not sure I would characterize his philosophy as truly existentialist. Um, he is a bit of a recluse in the same way that Pynchon is. But let me let me let me take us back to the, the very beginning of the, this conversation. The books that Cody and Kate have read are the most popular books of his by far. In order, you have The Road, uh, No Country for Old Men, Blood Meridian, and All the Pretty Horses. Now, at some point, All the Pretty Horses was far more popular than um, Blood Meridian, but that time times have changed. You know, people have gotten edgier. More racists have read more books and continued to misunderstand them. The road, you know, it, it is it is apocalyptically dark. It it, it is an it is an incredibly dark book. Um, but the meme is almost that oh, if you haven't if you've read the road and thought that was b bad, try reading Blood Meridian. 
<laughs> That's true. Yeah, and what I'm going to talk about today is the book that makes Blood Meridian look optimistic. Oh. Um, uh, the road is apocalyptically dark, and the prose is incredibly simple. It, it's, I mean, there's a lot of discussion in the McCarthy journals about um, how much at any given point is was he borrowing from Hemingway versus Faulkner versus various other American authors. But by the point he was writing The Road, he was by far more influenced by Hemingway's style. Um, that's at least the, you know, the popular conception. Um, no Country for Old Men was released a few years prior to that, and it's a straightforward neo-Western. Um, almost everybody, I'm sure, has seen the movie or heard of the movie. It's a great adaptation. If you've seen the movie and loved it, go ahead and read the book. If you saw the movie and thought, well, do I need to read the book to get it? No, you probably just didn't like it very much. So it's pretty much like a one-to-one -one adaptation, too, as far as book-to-film yeah. adaptations go. Yeah, the rumor goes that... Um, well, so this is true, that he that McCarthy wrote it as a screenplay and then adapted it to a novel. The rumor is that he sent that original screenplay to the Coens for for them to work off of to make the film version. Oh. No, I don't think that's uh, proven in any way, but, you know. Anywho, um, but it, it, it continues to um, show McCarthy's most... A famous attribute, which is violence, although it is much more subtle in No Country for Old Men than The Road. You know, comparing, you know, looking into a bunker full of frozen corpses to, uh, you know, a, a human embodiment of death. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> it's really, it's about margins. <laughs> And then you have Blood Meridian, which in the last few years has become incredibly popular to talk about for very good reason. It is a very good book. I'm not going to deny that whatsoever. It is incredibly overrated, even if I love it. Uh, but it is a, an excellent neo-Western, and in many ways it has defined our modern conception of neo-Westerns as a genre by subverting the cowboy narrative almost entirely, and so consistently. And the, the main feature of Blood Meridian that, that strikes as different compared to No Country for Old Men and The Road is that its prose is, it's not the, the polar opposite to those books, but it is uh, illustrious, it is biblical, it is old-fashioned, and unbelievably dark. I mean... Mm -hmm. The road has the, the you know, dead bodies and the cannibals. Um, Blood Meridian is about genocide, if you're not familiar with it. It is about the bootleggers in, uh, along the uh, U.S. and Mexican border prior to the Mexican-American War. They were exterminating people. That is what the book is about. And it is as dark as it needs to be to convey that. But the, the fundamental experience of the book is defined by this incredibly, overwhelmingly beautiful and significant prose, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, so, it, you know, of course I recommend it, but it's, it's far from my favorite of his books. Um, 
And it's interesting in this context because the next book he released was the one that made him popular, All the Pretty Horses. Oprah chose it for her book club in the early 90s. And um, McCarthy went from an author whose books reportedly sold less than 5,000 total copies from 1965 through 1991 to one of the best-selling authors of the year. I won the book, the National Book Award, too. Yeah. Uh, and All the Pretty Horses is nowadays very under, very, very underrated. It is by far his most hopeful book. Um, again, I have not read The Passenger. I could be wrong about that in essence. But um, no, All the Pretty Horses is a very optimistic neo-western that if you read it in the context of blood meridian you see that it is a repudiation of all of the lazy conclusions to draw from blood meridian you know the people who say well i liked john wayne and then i read blood meridian and now i know that cowboys are trash <laughs> and all the pretty horses very systematically page by page, undermines all of the symbols of Blood Meridian and makes a, an excellent counter-argument to it, even though it doesn't, you know, attacking the fundamental point that is that um, the Wild West as we know it is a myth created by Hollywood and pub book publishers for the sake of selling things. But beyond all of this nonsense, beyond all of this very, very cliched, trite stuff. I'm just covering it for the bases, so I'm sorry to anybody who knows all of this, like I'm sure all of my co-hosts here. Because what I'm going to talk about is his Appalachian period. Cormac McCarthy is not, was not born in Tennessee, but he was raised in Tennessee. His father was one of the uh, advisors of the Tennessee Valley Authority. He is intimate his personal history is intimately involved with the Knoxville P Pigeon Forge area. And in his first books, that is incredibly apparent. The Orchard Keeper was his first book, published in 1965, I believe. Sorry, I had notes for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, published in 1965, and... Um, Really, I mean, honestly, I have a hard time recommending it. It's incredibly dense, and I, all you can really get out of it nowadays is that early McCarthy loved Faulkner. <laughs> like, that book is some of the most beautifully descriptive prose I've ever read, and he takes such a strong intention of combining the thematic with the plot and the description throughout the book that it is honestly impossible to discern characters from each other. Like, well, even in fun. the same scene. You can't tell whether he's made a time jump back 20 years or if just someone else is talking. Hmm. It's, it, it isn't a far from perfect novel, but it is virtuosic. It did win the William Faulkner Foundation Award. I was going to say, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it is incredibly Faulknerian down to that, yeah. Moment where game recognized game. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, so, and the thing is that from the Orchard Keeper through, I believe, Sutri, at the point which the, the man died, um, McCarthy's editor was Faulkner's editor. Oh. 
so it, it, it and it's not one of those situations like um gordon lish was that his name where he was imposing a style mm. but there's a reason that this book or this author who had never published anything or had, sorry had never sold anything um up through the 90s was still getting published you know it's because he had the institutional backing of people like that who recognized the talent, even if um, the popular market did not. And that period, the, the Appalachian period, is typified by, again, more Faulknerian prose, more Southern Gothic in general themes, a lot of influence from um, Flannery O'Connor as well. And um, it, it culminates with Sutri, which is still very um, illustrious and descriptive and beautiful, primarily on a page-by-page, sentence-by-sentence level, far more than it is interesting or insightful philosophically, but it is both of those things as well. However, uh, at, by that point in time, uh, 1979, so 14 years after the publication of The Orchard Keeper, clearly McCarthy had figured out how to scale it down a bit because it, it goes from truly incomprehensible to quite welcoming, if imposing. And all of these books take place in Appalachia or in a setting that's remarkably similar to Appalachia, all during the first half of the 20th century. And Sutri is almost unique up until these last couple, the last couple of books that McCarthy published, uh, The Passenger and Stella Maris. It was the only book of his that was primarily defined by humor. It's still dark, it's still preoccupied with mortality and all of that good stuff. But he finally makes the philosophy explicit. He finally makes some of the themes um, more tangible without having to read between the lines and allusions that he makes in his descriptive writing. And then, just before Sutri, he wrote Child of God, um, Luke mentioned earlier. The reason, for anyone not aware, that we reacted that way is because Child of God is about a serial killer and necrophile. And it's a pretty effective novel about that subject. It is, it is fiction, obviously, but it is based off of numerous uh, real people who did live in the East Tennessee region. But it is also quite funny, and you can see how some of the characters in Sutri may have come from this Child of God character. And all of that brings me to the book I would like to focus on, finally. Uh, that being Outer Dark, which was McCarthy's second novel. And where um, Child of God is like this short comic horror novel, uh, Outer Dark is this is, is essentially a long and absurdist horror parable. It, it is essentially a parable that's been blown up massively and unlike the crying of lot 49 um it doesn't feel like it has glandular issues per se because it, do it does use all of the space but it is it is a short novel that has very little plot 
And this book is actually where you see the very beginnings of McCarthy's biblical tone that he indulges in most successfully in Blood Meridian. It's where we see the beginning of his, um, basically a series of plots that he writes that are about a guy walking on a road for a really long time. Those being um, Outer Dark, Blood Meridian, and The Road. And all of those books are um, also similar in the sense that they are his three darkest novels. So Outer Dark is special <laughs> because it is all of those things, and it is also uniquely dreamlike compared to the rest of his works. McCarthy is a huge fan of using dreams to tell a story, to use dreams within a story to tell a message to the character and the reader. Um, he, he is a master at using that um, in, in effectively ironic methods. It, 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 is, it is quite impressive when you read some of his dream scenes and a hundred pages later finally understand what he was saying. And if you're curious about that, um, he wrote an essay called The Kekule Problem. But I will warn anybody, it is not a scientific paper. It is a philosophical one. If anybody has criticisms for it that are based in the fact that it's not rooted in research, they don't understand what the method is. In any case, here's the first page of Outer Dark. They crested out on the bluff in the late afternoon sun with their shadows long on the sawgrass and burnt sedge, moving single file and slowly high above the river and with something of its own implacability, pausing and grouping for a moment and going on again strung out in silhouette against the sun and then dropping under the crest of the hill into a fold of blue shadow with light touching them about the head in spurious sanctity until they had gone on for such a time as, had, as saw the sun down altogether, and they moved in shadow altogether, which suited them very well. When they reached the river, it was full dark, and they made camp and a small fire across which their shapes moved in a nameless black ballet. They cooked whatever it was they had with them in whatever crude vessels and turned into sleep, sprawled on the packed mud, full clothed with their mouths gaped to the stars. They were about with the first light, the bearded one rising and kicking out the other two and still with no word among them, rekindling the fire and setting their battered pannikins about it, squatting on their haunches, eating again wordlessly with belt knives until the bearded one rose and stood spraddle-legged before the fire and closed the other two in a foul white plume of smoke out of and through which they fought suddenly and unannounced and mute and as suddenly ceased, picking up their ragged duffel and moving west along the river once again. These are what I will be referring to as the trio. They are not the central characters of the book. They do start it, though, and they are probably the most memorable parts of the book, are the, the few scenes where they take the center stage. They are made up of one bearded man who is evidently in charge, and he is the only one who seems to speak coherently. There is an, a smaller one, the smallest one, I believe, named Harmon, who is... Uh, most reminiscent of the 
the shrieking hyena in The Lion King. And the third is only known as the Nameless One. He is covered in scars. He is entirely subservient to the other two. Um, and he is also, like the rest of them, um, a, a mindless killer and cannibal. And he is the one who is most likely to do the dirty work for the other two. Now, that is about all we know about these three characters, who do define the book. And again, they are not the central characters. Because they, as much as, um, as I pointed to the Lion King hyenas there, for uh, example, that is as Shakespearean as it gets. Um, they are not the witches in Macbeth. They are not Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. They are not anything. Um, they are the Furies. They are the Greek and Roman mythological cleanup crew, essentially, come to uh, spread retribution in however way they see fit. And throughout, whenever they show up, um, there's a lot of things said by the bearded one. And there's a lot that can be read into what the bearded one says. But I don't pay it very much mind, because the bearded one is not the main character. The main characters start on the next page. She shook him awake into the quiet darkness. Hush, she said. Quit hollering. He sat up. What? He said. What? She shook him awake from dark to dark, delivered out of the clamorous rubble under a black sun into a night more dolorous, sitting upright and cursing beneath his breath on the bed he shared with her and the nameless weight in her belly, awake from this dream. There was a prophet standing in the square with arms upheld in exhortation to the beggared multitude gathered there, a delegation of human ruin who attended him with blind eyes upturned and puckered stumps and leprous sores. The sun hung on the cusp of eclipse, and the prophet spoke to them. This hour the sun would darken, and all these souls would be cured of their afflictions before it appeared again. And the dreamer himself was caught up among the supplicants. And when they had been blessed, and the sun had, and the sun begun to blacken, he did push forward and hold up his hand and call out, Me! he cried. Can I be cured? The prophet looked down as if surprised to see him there amongst, amidst such pariahs. The sun paused. He said, Yes, I think perhaps you will be cured. Then the sun buckled and dark fell like a shout. The last wire-thin rim crept away. They waited. Nothing moved. They waited a long time and it grew chill. Above them hung the stars of another season. There began a restlessness and a muttering. The sun did not return. It grew cold and more black and silent, and some began to cry out, and some despaired, but the sun did not return. Now the dreamer grew fearful. Voices were being raised against him. He was caught up in the crowd, and the stink of their rags filled his nostrils. They grew seething and more mutinous, and he tried to hide among them. But he, but they knew him, even in that pit of hopeless dark, and fell upon him with howls of outrage. So, those two characters, one of which we got a very, very brief introduction to, were Rinthi and Cullah Holm. Rinthi... And Kola are sister and brother, respectively. And Rinthi is pregnant. They live in the middle of nowhere in a shack in the hills of what seems to be a nightmarish version of Appalachia. 
there there are two dots there that, that are going to be connected i'm sure for most of you for those of you who don't connect the dots i'm sorry you can figure it out with wikipedia i'm not going to linger on it because it is dark and it is exactly as bad as um you would hope it isn't because Cormac McCarthy is not one of these guys writing in the 60s thinking, well, sure, it would make sense for these two Adam and Eve-like characters to have a completely um, comfortable incestuous relationship. No, no, he recognizes the dynamics at play here. And one of the primary ways that you can see this, um, the, the, the relate you can see the relationship between these two siblings is that uh, a tinker, a traveling salesman, comes through, and Kola comes out, and he's ashamed of the fact that, you know, his sister is pregnant. And so he goes and he says, Hey, my sister is sick. Don't come any closer. And the tinker offers him some coffee, some tea, various things, household necessities, and uh, Kola refuses all of it. And when he goes back inside, um, the first thing Rinthi asks him is, Hey, did they have any cocoa? I sure would like some cocoa right now. And Kula doesn't know if he had any cocoa. And all he says is no. And this is especially salient, because uh, it turns out that Kula has been hiding money. Despite the fact that both he and Rinthi have been surviving off of pretty much nothing but cornbread. Uh, which is moldy at this point in time. And, well, the, the tinker goes away a little bit suspicious, but whatever. And a couple of days later, Rinthi goes into labor. And apparently, Kola has promised her, Hey, I'll go get this, uh, I'll, I'll go get this, this black witch doctor who helps deliver babies. Great idea. Well, he mm -hmm. doesn't do that. Oh. He has told her this because, you know, she needs a midwife. But, no, he does not. Sorry, I just skipped ahead like a hundred pages in my copy. So, here is the dialogue between uh, Rinthi and Kola while Rinthi is entering labor. She said, I got a pain. Is it it? He said, standing suddenly from the bed where he had sat, staring out through one small glass at the unbroken pine forest. I don't know, she said. I reckon. He swore softly to himself. You going to fetch her? He looked at her and looked away again. No, he said. She sat forward in the chair, watching across the room with eyes immense in her, in her thin, thin face. You said you'd fetch her when the time come. I never, he said. I said maybe. Fetch her, she said. Now you fetch her. I can't. She'd tell. Who is they to tell? Anybody. You could give her a dollar. Couldn't you give her a dollar not to tell and she'd not tell? No. Besides, she ain't nothing but a... I'm not going to read it, um, but... She's nothing but a witch. No way. She's been a midnight woman, caught them babies lots of time. You, s you said your own self she was a midnight woman, used to catch them babies. She said it. I never. He could hear her crying, a low bubbling sound, her rocking back and forth. After a while, she said, I got another. Ain't you going to fetch her? No. And so Renthi delivers her child alone.
And it's at this moment, one must consider the fact that Rinthi has been pregnant for eight to nine months and been probably continually abused in some way, shape, or form her whole life. And at least in the last eight to nine months. And um, she has not been eating anything but stale cornbread. So she's she's pretty delirious at the end of the whole deal. And Kula decides, probably out of a mix of, well, definitely, mostly out of shame, but, uh, you know, probably a little bit of some other, like, economic concerns. But who knows? Because honestly, you can't tell whether he does anything for money. He trades a lot, so maybe he does some trapping, but clearly they're not doing very well. Um, and who knows whether Rinthi worked, but I imagine she probably, you know, kept them both fed, at the very least. So, all of that in mind, Kola takes advantage of the situation, takes the baby, and goes to dispose of it in the woods. However, Kola is a coward. And does not kill the baby, and just leaves it out to, hopefully, in his mind, be eaten. Well, fortunately for the baby, the same night, the tanker is still in the area, and he hears the crying baby, and he goes and finds it, and he connects the dots and recognizes that this is probably the child of that suspicious boy, um, and that they are both in their late teens, probably. Um, and the tinker goes and finds a wet nurse for the baby. Well, it takes a couple of takes a couple of days, and uh, Rinthi figures out what happened because you know, Kula is very bad at lying. Uh, he didn't even dig a hole to just say he dug a hole. So when Rinthi says, um, "Hey, I sure would like to take flowers to the baby," Kula, he went past her and put the bucket on the table. He had her hand to her mouth. She had her hand to her mouth watching him with huge eyes. He put the dipper in the pail and took a drink. He wiped his mouth and looked at her. Kala, what, damn it? I just wanted to ask where it's at. He winced and his eyes went narrow. What do you mean, he said. Her eyes worked nervously. I just wanted to know where it was you put him. In the ground. Well, she said, I just thought maybe if you was to show me where, where at, I could see it and maybe put some flowers or something. Flowers, he said. It ain't even got a name. She was twisting her hands again, and he came from the table where he had been leaning and started past her. Kola, he stopped at the door and looked at her. She hadn't even looked around. We could give it one, she said. It's dead, he said. You don't name things dead. She turned slowly. It wouldn't hurt nothing, she said. Damn you, he said. The flowers if you want. I'll show you. And, of course, she, he takes her to, a, essentially, an empty grave that he has basically raked over the ground. Which she comes back to later and discovers that there is no body in the grave. And um, due to a, a series of interesting events, she ends up going down to the market and coming to the conclusion that Kula has sold the baby to um, the tinker. And from this point on, the story splits off into two different to two different sets of plot essentially um you have alternating vignettes not directly but roughly alternating vignettes 
of Rinthi following the road and meeting people and offering to help just every day, you know, help make dinner, whatever, in exchange for room and board. Um, and she's unashamed of her quest, despite the fact that she is a lone woman traveling along the road saying, hey, I am looking for a man who I don't know who has taken a baby from me that I never saw, whose father I can't identify. She knows what that makes her look like. Um, and the whole time it's her trying to find anything she can find along this road. And throughout it, she generally is treated with some hospitality and she returns it. Kula, after getting home and realizing that Rinthia has taken off, collects some of the money he's hidden and sets off looking for her. Seemingly for in, in the attempt to um, bring her back so that things can go back to the way they were, whatever that was. And um, whenever he runs across anybody, he either presents himself as looking for his sister or as just looking for work. And due to a shame of looking, or <laughs> due to a mix of shame and kind of a general self-unawareness, he makes himself out to be on the lamb repeatedly. Uh, and he, he continually betrays his better instincts and the people who go out on a limb for him. And as the story goes along, if, you, if you're just reading it casually, you'll see that essentially, or you might think these, these stories are entirely unrelated, but reading it quickly, you will see that all of these people, and if not the same people, the same households, the same friendships, the same towns are where each of these characters comes through successively. There, there is a lot of linking here, even though as the story goes on, time becomes more and more warped and things become more and more dreamlike. But um, Rinthi goes along, meeting people, trying to help out, and then basically running away when the people she runs into show themselves as unworthy of trust. Whereas Kulla goes around, making a bad case for himself, and then... Um, tending to be, be given, he tends to be given some grace anyway, and then he betrays that, that trust and has to run away to avoid either punishment for things he did do or things that he is acting so suspiciously that people feel no guilt about blaming him for. And at a certain point in time, Um, you realize that the people that the trio are killing are these same people that Rinthi and Kola are meeting. And there doesn't seem to be a strong correlation, or not correlation, there doesn't seem to be a strong reason for the killings. Um, the bearded man gives justification, and he is the first instance of the character that became fleshed out in The Judge, in Blood Marine, and Anton Chigurh in... Um, no Country for Old Men, but this is a different one, because those two characters, you pretty much believe that they believe what they're saying. But personally, when I read these characters, they are lying, in my opinion. And so the bearded man is bringing up this socialist and anarchist and Marxist rhetoric to justify his killing of these people, some of which have slighted Kola, some of which 
just basically did their best to help out a guy who was kind of being a dick to them. They they all die basically, and at um, at a certain point, Kola boards a ferry, and this ferry gets hit by a wave, and the ferry line breaks, and he gets pulled out of the river by the bearded man. And this is how that conversation goes. I'm going to uh, abridge this heavily. So anybody who's read this, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing, I promise. The bearded man was leaning forward with interest. Ah, he said, you ain't the fairy man. No, Holmes said. It knocked him plumb out of his boots. That cable did when it busted. Sounded like a cannon load of cats going by. Well now, the bearded one said. I allowed you was the ferryman. No, Holmes said. It was like I told you. The bearded man was, or the bearded one was watching him very intently. He looked down at the fire. On the rock, there was a pan of black and mummified meat. He watched the fire and rubbed his hands together. The other two men had come up and were squatting half in darkness watching him. The bearded one looked toward them, and Holm looked at the pan of meat again. Help yourself to some meat there if you're hungry, the man said. Holmes swallowed and glanced at him again. In the upslant of light, his beard shone and his mouth was red, and his eyes were shadowed lunettes with nothing there at all. What kind is it? The man didn't answer. Holm looked to the fire. I really ain't a bit hungry, he said. But I'd admire to try this here shirt if you don't care. The man nodded. He started to pull the wet sh sorry, dry this here shirt if you don't care. The man nodded. He started to pull the wet shirt off, and as he jerked his arms forward, he felt the cloth part soundlessly down the back. He stopped and reached behind him gingerly. Looks like you about out of a shirt, the man said. Yes, he said. He peeled the shirt from him and looked at it, holding it up before the fire. You ain't it, the man said. Holmes' stomach turned coldly. Ain't no need to be backwards about it. Get all you want. We've done it. Or we've done it. He laid the shirt across his knees reached gingerly and took a piece of the blackened meat from the pan and bit into it. It had the consistency of Huang, was dusted with ash, tasted of sulfur. He tore off a bit and began and be, yeah, began chewing, his jaws working in a hopeless circular motion. The bearded one nodded. Well, this whole scene is incredibly dark and incredibly creepy, and I will Suffice it to say that um, I'm pretty sure that he's eating human flesh. There's quite a bit of uh, reason for that, but I'm not going to go into all of it. But it is some incredibly effective horror writing, regardless. And in the end, I'm going to going to spoil this very, very slightly for anybody listening. Um, look in the show notes for timestamps to skip to at this point. But I'm going to at least thematically describe this the, the ending that happens to Kula and Rinthi. I won't tell the actual events. Basically, Rinthi is symbolically ruined. She finally catches up to the tinker after like nine months of chasing him, and he berates her. He tears her apart for abandoning her child, which she obviously never did. He threatens her life and he shows and demonstrates to her the ways in which she will never 
meet her child again, and I'm going to leave what exactly that means um, for, for, for reading, because that's important. And Kula, on the other hand, even though he meets that trio, even though that trio shakes him down for his boots and forces him to eat human flesh, he is one of the only characters who, at the end, we are sure is alive. Because the Tinker, we know what happens to him. And Rinthi, we actually don't know what happens to her. But it's not a good thing, for sure. Kula, on the other hand, the last thing that happens to him is he's continuing to walk, probably years later, and he runs into a blind man. And the last line, or the last paragraph in the book, Going back the way by which he came, he met again the blind man tapping through the dusk. He waited very still by the, by the side of the road, but the blind man passed. Or, geez. But the blind man passing turned his head and smiled upon him, his blind smile. Holm watched him out of sight. He wondered where the blind man was going, and did he know how the road ended? Someone should tell a blind man before sending him out that way. And that is the, that is the end of my very long summary of a very short book. To which I will say, Rinthi takes accountability, and Kula never takes accountability. Rinthi lies. Or sorry, Kula lies, Rinthi tells the truth. Rinthi is constantly going through this story, trying to make the world a better place for herself, for the child that she's looking for, for the people who she looks for help from. Kula, on the other hand, is doing almost the exact opposite the entire time. And he is the only person left standing at the end of the story, as the individual who does not care, as the person who does not have a goal, as the person who doesn't want the world to be a better place. He is the one that the trio leaves standing. And there are a lot of theories about what the trio represent, um, but I will, I will suffice it to say that I think the moral nihilism summary is about as concrete an, an end point you're going to get, which is to say that you might, you might make more friends if you're like Rinthi, and you might be a better person in every way, shape, and form. But that doesn't mean you're going to get what you want or what you deserve, and it doesn't mean that you're going to succeed in helping the people around you. The only way to succeed in that is to run, and to lie, and to hide, and to backstab whenever you get the chance. The end. So if I'm sort of understanding, I guess, your, your thesis statement for picking this book and kind of with your intro. The idea is just that Cormac McCarthy really can be that dark or is that dark, but people are reading the wrong books to arrive at that conclusion. If I'm kind of sort of understanding kind of the, the, the seed germ of, of picking this book and discussing it. Is that right? No, that is, that is, that is a, a thing I could be arguing. And I wouldn't resent somebody for making that argument, but I'm not. Essentially, my, my point in choosing this book is, in short, that his, 
he he is known for this very specific style, this mm-hmm. very uh, very concrete, very stereotypically masculine Hemingway esque pro style. Yeah, and he is often written off based on these books that are dark, but written off as though he's trying to be, you know, just trying to be dark. But what I see in Outer Dark is, while it is a nihilistic text, there is a lot of humanity in it. You do see Rinthi going about trying to make the world a better place, and you do see the people that Kula scams, in most cases, trying to give him what they can. Um, and it's, you know, regardless of the end, um, there is humanity to be found there along the journey. I, I meant to say at the very beginning of all of this, and I, it completely slipped my mind, is that I, I'm not trying to do my normal thing of having like a ridiculously large um, point that I'm building to. But of course, mm-hmm. I, I've inevitably structured it that way because that's how this works. Um I just think this is a good book that is very under-discussed in his oeuvre and I think is a different... Sorry, my dog is going crazy. <laughs> it's, it's a, I think, a, a great introduction to his books because it is not the style that most people know him for um, and it is also not ridiculously alienating to the reader. However, it does feature the genesis of most of his trademark um, themes and plot elements. Gotcha. Do you think that there is a, a specific reason or reasons, or do you have any theories as to why the book is under discussed when compared to the rest of his, his canon of literature? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it just does just come back to the fact that people don't know how to summarize it because mm. with child of God, you know, it's, it's a very dark book, but it's comedic and it is a much more popular book to teach. They're, they're comparable in length. But um, Child of God is much more popular, and that comes down to the fact that it is a fundamentally unserious book. It's a book about this ridiculously realistic and sad character. Um, But you read it, and you kind of have to laugh, or else you are sitting there sympathizing with someone who is as disgusting as, like, Ed Gein. True. Maybe slightly less. (laughs) But um, whereas with this book... Cole is a piece of shit. He's a horrible person to everybody he interacts with. But he is also, in the same way that, you know, Cain is asking God, um, am I my brother's keeper? That is essentially his his sin, is not answering affirmative to that. And I don't think that people know what to do with truly nihilistic texts. Because the road, oh, it's depressing, but, you know, it has that little note of ecological optimism at the end and some mm-hmm. theological optimism um, and blood meridian is dark but it's again it's historical you can kind of say well these people were bad but they were bad people even if the whole point of the book is to argue against that it you know you can at least emotionally say well but there are not people going around killing apaches for scalps with this one, people are doing all of the bad things that happen, with the exception of the trio's truly horrible violence. The the actual evil is not them killing people. It is Kula refusing to take responsibility for the people around him. 
and it's just that's just a hard thing to talk about i think i think it's not a fun thing to read about i think it's not a fun thing to talk about and i think it's um depressing <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. fair yeah um would you say that that and i'm i think i probably know the answer to my own question here but would you say that this is a better entry point to McCarthy's work for people unfamiliar with it or or should they maybe navigate towards something like the road or um or you know I guess no country or something that's a little more at the end of it all optimistic than it sounds like this is well i i would say that if we're going to be talking about the the challenging parts of McCarthy's books on a, on a you know on a popular level like why why is this book not popular it is because it's dark the 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 challenging aspects of reading his books however are not these ideas cuz as much as they might sicken the reader you pretty much know that going into it um i i think that the road is a remarkably bad introduction to mccarthy's larger works because <laughs> while it's thematically in line with things i think stylistically it is such an extreme aberration that it is a it is actually a bad introduction although it was mine and it is i think a it's a lot book. of people's yeah yeah it, it's just the um you know i i don't think that that hope at the end of the road is really going to save you if you can't handle the darkness to that point yeah and i think that if if you are trying to get into McCarthy's books and you're not trying to impress people by starting with Blood Meridian or with uh, Sutri or the Orchard Keeper, <laughs> I would say that the, the best place to start would either be Child of God or with um, All the Pretty Horses. Because Child of God does have that tr the true objection. It is abjection. That is what McCarthy is talking about, is humanity abandoning each other essentially mm -hmm. in most of his works and in that book that is that is what the subject matter is but he shows that he can be funny with it which is not something that he uh, he demonstrates very much and i think reading that book um gives you a good lens on the humor in his more straightforward and self-serious books that still do have humor the road does have humor it's just hidden <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and All the Pretty Horses, like I said, is entirely different from his other books in terms of straightforward subject matter, but thematically it's covering the same things. It's still talking about issues of evil and um, what, what we owe one another. And you see a lot of the, the favorite archetypes that he works with in all of his books in All the Pretty Horses. And it has just as beautiful a pro of prose as pretty much all of his books, except if you want if you want to be snobby about it, No Country for Old Men or The Road. It 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 is on par with all of his other works in terms of sophistication. But it is it is lighter on a thematic or on a, not on a thematic on a direct level. So I I would one of those two ways, depending on the person's preference in literature. If you like a horse story. Read all the pretty horses. If you like dark comedies, read Child of God. Um, if you read Child of God and you loved it, read Outer Dark. If you read all the pretty horses and you loved it, 
Uh, you're kind of SOL, but um, you know, probably <laughs> read the rest of the trilogy. Any other questions? I do have one more, and it's it's kind of for everybody, I think. Um, but I'll direct it to you first, Will. Um, given your kind of opening statements at this episode, at the beginning of the episode, do you think that the the fan base of an author or or any artist really can be so uh what's what's the word i'm looking for obnoxious or or um grotesquely obsessive with that artist that it can actually ruin um and it, like even an established fans uh, appreciation of that work yeah i totally think they can i mean uh I, I, you know, Kate and I have talked about it a lot. Um, th th this is something that really irritates me. And it's not for the sake of, you know, oh, people aren't reading Pynchon um, and he's so good so they need to read him to, to, validate, to validate my love for his books. And it's not about, oh, I'm so much better than all of these people. Um, so I need to peacock with the quality of the books I read. But it, it, it comes down to the fact that people read these books, whether it's, you know, long, hard books like Gravity's Rainbow or Mason and Dixon or Infinite Jest, um, or they read, you know, entire bibliographies of somebody like Cormac McCarthy, not because of these ego-driven stories that are easy to dismiss, but because, we, you know, we love reading these authors we, we think that they have a lot to give the world and we think it's a shame that people are dismissing them for careless reasons yeah no i i totally think it can i don't think that that has happened with mccarthy and i don't think that has happened with pinchon um, i think there's an argument to say that that is what happened with david foster wallace sure is yeah but um you know it's totally possible I think I don't think it's common, um, but I'm mostly annoyed by it. It's not like some tragedy that people think that McCarthy is an asshole because they read an explainer about Blood Meridian or something. Yeah, I, I so if we're taking turns answering the question, um, yeah, I I would second to everything Will said, and I would also say it certainly that did happen to to the fan base of David Foster Wallace. I think that that fan base has recovered. I don't know where those people went, but it seems like they stopped talking, um, which is great. But I, I would also say it's not for a specific book or series, but YA fans. Um, and when I say YA fans, I don't mean people who just read young adult fiction every once in a while, but people who are in their mid to late 20s. And only read YA. Yeah, I was gonna say exclusively read um, YA. Yeah, those are some of the most insufferable people on the planet, as far as, as far as you know, like bibliophiles are concerned. And it's not so much from the standpoint of like, I really love YA. Let me share with you my love of YA. It's the fact that a lot of them seem to tear down other genres of books. Yeah, as yeah. as being less than, um, which is why I, I bring up that as a comparison point. 
which not that I necessarily had a, a, a huge desire to read much young adult fiction. I didn't really read young adult fiction when I was the target demographic of young adult fiction, but it does certainly make me look at that section of the bookstore with a different facial expression than I otherwise would when I am, when I'm walking <laughs> through um, a bookstore that I happen to be in. So, so that's, that would, that would come to mind. Um, and then fans of Patrick Rothfuss uh, also come to mind. Yeah, well, I, okay. I, I will, I will. Okay. I, I'm not disagreeing with that, but I will say, I think in recent time, given a lot of the controversy that he has put himself into recently, yeah. I think a lot of those fans are starting to jump ship. Yeah, that's fair. So, and I think you're right about that. But I do vividly remember uh, there was an employee at a Barnes & Noble that for, I think, a solid three and a half years, every single time I went into Barnes & Noble, he was working. I don't know when his days off were because he never seemed to have any of them. Um, and... Every single time without fail, I wouldn't talk to him. I wouldn't ask him anything, but he would come up to me and just hand me a copy of Name of the Wind. Um, And then eventually I told him, like, oh, yeah, it's on my list. I will eventually get around to reading it in hopes that this man would just leave me alone. (laughs) Um, And then what it then turned into was he would then walk up to me and go, have you read Name of the Wind yet? And so you noticed on my bookshelves, Cody, that I own a copy of Name of the Wind. Mm-hmm. Is that the I, one? I own that copy of Name of the Wind because I purchased it in front of him so he would leave <laughs> me alone. Um, did it work? Uh, it did. It did. Be- because he then seemed to stop working there or I somehow... His, his mission was fulfilled and he could go about his way. <laughs> I got this one girl to buy this fantasy book that I'm obsessed with. I can retire champion now. Um, yeah, so that would be another one that comes to mind. So I do I do think it is possible, but I don't think that there is uh, like a level that you can reach where there's no redemption to it, yeah. so to speak. Like, like what, what has happened with Wallace, where I feel like that has largely recovered as a fan base is concerned again i i'd love to know where all of the lit bros went just if for no other reason to avoid where that is They're but also just yeah just from an anthropological perspective i'm just curious where they all went uh <laughs> and the same thing would be true to your point cody with with, with rothfuss um so it's always dynamic i'm sure there was a period in time where pinchon's fan base it was insufferably annoying um uh, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I think that now Pinchon has kind of settled into a into a position um, where most people who read him go, "Oh yeah, I'm really into this guy Thomas Pinchon," and then that kind of the conversation kind of ends there, right? <laughs> because what? there's no there's no way to like summarize his writing to people in a way that you can, uh, you know to a lesser extent david foster wallace or or someone like cormac mccarthy especially um i feel like with cormac mccarthy to get more to the topic at hand i i feel like with him it's more individual books that people are insufferable about um blood meridian being the best example of it certainly the one that has come up the most over the course of of will's episode here um but yeah, yeah. that's a 
Yeah, that's a very long-winded way of saying, I think it's possible, Cody. <laughs> I, I will say, I, th- I have to push back on your optimism regarding Pynchon fans. Uh, um, yeah? Well, so not to talk about other podcasts. Um, I'm, okay. I'm a fan of Behind the Bastards, and on an uh-huh. episode from a couple of years ago, of Jamie Loftus was on. And um, the, the host was saying a name that was uh, similar to Gravity's Rainbow, the name of a book. And she interrupted to say, I'm sorry, I keep having flashbacks to my, to my college boyfriend because I keep thinking you're saying Gravity's Rainbow. Mm. And his response was, of course, um, yeah, this is a Thomas Pynchon free zone when I'm pretty sure that there's no author in the world more in line with his politics. <laughs> so yeah, I wouldn't be that optimistic. Do you have any thoughts on that question, Luke? Not for me. Uh, it definitely can be true for other people. I mean, I dated a girl who w- refused to watch Rick and Morty because of the fan base. Um, Ooh, that's a good one. That that's is a, good a one. tricky one. Yeah, because I, I do. I'm, I'm, I'm not a fanboy, but I, I, I enjoy Rick and Morty. I've, I've seen each episode at least once. Um, you are very smart. <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's how that's how you know i'm smart is because i'm i watch yeah. Morty, you know uh-huh. but um it definitely is true for other people at least that 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 definitely can happen uh for me it doesn't really bother me quite as much i mean now that i'm i've been out of school you know for a while even when i was in grad school i don't you know, like i don't i'm not necessarily around people who annoy me as much if that makes sense you know like i I, growing up there were people who the stuff they liked would i would i would not like because they liked it um definitely but that was more of like a being forced to being around them type thing um so i I would say no that that doesn't it for me at least it doesn't ruin my my enjoyment of any any certain piece of art the fans but i do know that for other people it definitely can Oh yeah, and I mean, if we're gonna expand out past books, there are some some prime examples in the world of music. Um, give that it away, give it away, give it away now. Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be one of them. Yep, that's for sure. Yeah, I and mean, personally, I'm much more impacted by by the haters. Um, I, you know, when I when I read the 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 review that coined hysterical realism, that's when I decided I needed to be a fan of Zadie Smith. Oh. Yeah, even though Zadie Smith herself puts herself in the uh, the new sincerity canon post-Wallace. I'm fine with new sincerity canon. <laughs> just not with James Wood. <laughs> so yeah, if, if that's the end of all the questions around the book, uh, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. This has been a great time to just rant about a book that is underappreciated for far too long and probably make make everybody quite tired of ta- thinking about it long before they get around to reading it. <laughs> but I hope that your, your will to read it persists and uh, hope to see you next week where, if all things go according to plan, we should be beginning Vineland. So thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye. See ya. Bye.